Welcome to the Paradise Paradox. Crazy ideas for open-minded people. I'd like to present this interview with my co-host of the Multiversity Project. Her name is Katie Kelly, and she's kind of known for running voluntarist meetups in Austin, Texas, as well as in Puerto Vallarta. And in this interview, we get into that, into how her political ideology or philosophy has evolved over the years from being to an extreme American liberal, from eventually being a libertarian, then a libertarian anarchist or voluntarist, and then eventually, I guess, a post-anarchist. And we don't know what to call it. We don't know what comes next. I encourage you to check out our project, The Multiversity Project. You can go to multiversitypodcast.com and it's about higher dimensional education, higher dimensional learning. And we talk about a lot of wild ideas. We try to do it in an intellectually rigorous way. So for every episode, we always do several hours of preparation and thinking about the implications of what we're talking about. We have some interesting interviews on there talking about quantum physics, what it's like to be in a cult. And we've got upcoming episodes talking about Solving the Meaning Crisis, among other things. Check that out, multiversitypodcast.com. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Steam it, Hyperspace. Thank you. Thank you. Let's get into it. here with my friend Katie Kelly and she's known for starting a voluntarist meetup it was in Austin right yeah yeah I co-founded yeah. it with my ex Stephen Walker yeah and yep. yeah other organizations in other places right yes uh I also then after I left Austin Texas and in the U.S. more generally, I moved to Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, and I started a voluntarist meetup group there. Um, yeah. I'm not currently leading any organizations, though. Right, sure, sure. So yeah. there's a lot of a, a lot of interesting things that we can talk about. So if you like, we can start by talking about how you first became a, a voluntarist. So you said you were going to get involved in the military and, and things changed. So sure. what was the background? Sure. So I guess my background, um, I was always really interested in how the world worked and in conflict. And I didn't, I didn't understand why we couldn't have world peace and just, you know, be better to each other. And when I was younger, I kind of blamed a lot of it on religion and then it's, but you know, it, it evolved from there. Um, but by the time I was getting ready to go to college, I was, I was pretty liberal. Like I was, I was more on the left. Um, I was interested in getting involved in foreign relations and I was pretty fascinated by like the Middle Eastern world. So I went to the University of Maryland College Park, which was right outside of the DC area and um, my plan was to study Arabic and political science. Uh, once I got there, I 
I interacted with some people who had been ambassadors or who were in kind of the field that I wanted to go into foreign relations. And I noted that it seemed that basically anybody in these levels of the government had military experience. And I was also terrified of college debt. So at that point, I decided to um, join Air Force ROTC, which was like the, the officer training program. What um, is that short for? What is that? It, it's, uh, I think it's Reserve Officer Training Program. It's something Officer Training Program. Okay. Uh, uh, well, actually, no. What does it? Reserve Officers Training Corps. <laughs> okay, makes sense. I, I, had to, I had to just Google that <laughs> real quick. <laughs> um, yeah, so kind of in the background during all this time, um, I had a roommate who had a boyfriend who was an anarcho-capitalist mm. and very much a Randian and very much a Ron Paul fan and like, you know, he was full on talking about the non-aggression principle and talking about, you know, basically all of the anarcho-capitalist talking points. And we would get into debates multiple times a week about politics and about ethics. I thought he was just a horrible person because he didn't believe in things like public schools. Mm. Uh, I, I was very, I was extremely triggered and angered by his perspective. Um, but eventually... Over time, like once I kind of let my defenses down, I was able to kind of see through the the veil a little bit. I didn't realize that that government was an inherently forceful or violent institution. I saw democracy yeah. as like the the will of the people, right. and and yeah, that's how I, most people see it. I think. And yeah, there's some validity to that, but it's you know it's a complex thing. Exactly, it's a complex thing, and I, I I was always generally anti-war, which was kind of ironic because I was going into the military at at that time. But I I kind of I wanted to have I wanted to be in there so that I would have that experience to know what was going on, on. and also I I just there was so much. It was clear in the D.C. area that it was about who you know and that there was, like, a way to rise through the ranks. And that, that was just, like, the way that I saw to do it um, at that time. But I was motivated by a desire for world peace, which I know is really ironic. Um, but once I realized that that wasn't aligned with what I was doing, I had kind of a moral crisis. And I left that college and you know went to a university closer to home and just kind of freaked out and said oh, I'll be a math major and do something really practical and yeah that didn't last but um, <laughs> <laughs> okay so you gave up being practical yeah or gave up the standard way of being practical yeah yeah um yeah um uh, yeah basically uh this this guy uh convinced me into libertarianism and got me almost all the way to anarchism and then Reddit and lots of internet hunting did another three quarters of the job. And then when I was in Wisconsin studying math, I met, uh, I met a guy who's my, my ex-partner who I co-founded the meetup with. Um, and he was a voluntarist and was kind of more embedded in like the voluntarist communities and had lived a really unorthodox lifestyle. And I thought, you know what, fuck everything that I'm doing. 
we moved to Austin together and co-founded the meetup and, and that's kind of how that went. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so at that time, your beliefs were very supported by the community that you built around that. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. At that time, I was, most of my friends or really my only friends were, were people within the community that we had built together. And, um, and we were leading it. So obviously we, we wrote the description of the meetup group. So we, we attracted people who agreed with us and we, we developed our, our beliefs together. It was, we, we weren't an activism group. We were more of a philosophical discussion group and, and we, we talked about a lot about our own lives and we kind of all went on personal <laughs> journeys together, like not just speaking about voluntarism, but a lot of us also uh, became vegan, explored veganism. We challenged ideas about monogamy and non-monogamy. We talked a lot about peaceful parenting and about our own family histories and, and things of that nature as well. It was a really impactful time and a good group. Yeah. It's still going. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that's yeah. that's your legacy. That's cool. Mm. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> well, this is interesting. Yeah. Uh, libertarians and voluntarists are seen as well. I hope in the in the best uh, light, they're seen as rugged individualists. You know, and, yes. <laughs> and not as uh, greedy, selfish you know, arrogant, self-absorbed people. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I um, really didn't see that at all in this, <laughs> in this community. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good. So it's interesting when you have a c- community of people like that, how it can work so well, I suppose. Yeah. 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 Work so well in what kind of ways do you mean? That, uh, I suppose that it uh, didn't get, taken over by somebody with a loss for power or something like that, or somebody trying to disband it, to disband it, or, you know, if some chaos entered in, nothing like that. No, yeah. no, no. I mean, like there were a few one-on-one personal conflicts, but nothing like extremely, no, not, not nothing more dramatic than like a regular friend group. I don't, I don't think. Mm. Mm. Yeah. That's interesting. Because there are certain communities, like people trying to build libertarian communities, and sometimes things fall apart, the the wrong kind of characters get in, and it seems like we don't know much, uh, libertarians don't know a whole lot about setting up systems to dissolve conflict and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, one thing that I would say, like for this particular group, Voluntarist of Austin, one, it wasn't, it wasn't a group where we were specifically building anything. It was just a, it was just a community of, of friends and for philosophical exploration. We basically just met up at a, at a coffee bar, uh, mm. once every few weeks and it was open to everyone to come talk about their ideas on liberty, on voluntarism, on philosophy, on whatever. And we, you know, we were just, we were just going down philosophical rabbit holes together every mm. week. Um, it may have been different had we had like common goals with high stakes and we're, we're trying to build something. I don't know how that would have gone. 
Um, also, maybe this is something that helped um, quite a bit. Uh, one of the early members of the meetup group, Scott Swain, is a nonviolent communication expert mm. um, and consultant. And so NVC was very like present and talked about in that in that group uh, pretty often. And actually, I would say that, like a lot of a lot of the people in that meetup group also went to weekly nonviolent communication meetups that he hosted, and that probably helps. I mean, <laughs> we, we we had our own we had our own personal issues. I mean, obviously, Stephen, the the co-founder, and I are no longer together, and that was. A pretty tumultuous thing. Um, but in terms of the group itself, I don't think that the meetup was really impacted. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, nonviolent communication is a great tool. Actually, I, just, I still need to study and practice it more. But from what I've learned, it's a very simple and powerful. Yeah. Uh, NBC is basically a, a framework for communication where you're you're communicating your feelings and needs without judgment and, and trying to identify the feelings and needs of other people. So instead of placing blame on someone else, you might say some, something like, I feel upset when you do this because I, I, you know, it's, it's, this is hitting my need for more like personal consideration in our relationship. So it's very, mm -hmm. You take personal responsibility for your own feelings and you you kind of dig deep. It, it can sound a little bit robotic depending on how you use it, but I think that the mindset I think that the mindset behind it is maybe more helpful than the actual script. And I, I think a lot of people would agree. I'm not an NBC expert, but right. I yeah, I noticed that like some sometimes I would try to use it even on the the internet. Uh, I would try to use yeah. it on Facebook and stuff. And I, I was like, hang on, if I say this in the way that it's written in the book, I'm going to sound like a, a, a weirdo. So I come yeah. some kind of like, hello, hello, fellow humans. I'm just here on earth telling you about exactly. my emotions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I yeah, had to find some know. creative ways to use the formula and, express myself honestly and that's an interesting yeah. challenge and it's it's kind of fun yeah for me okay so i was actually extremely resistant to nonviolent communication uh like for for a long time um it, mo most of the time while i was in the meetup like there there were some things that i liked about it but other things that i didn't like it it removes moral judgment and I've always been a very like heavily moralistic person, you know, and, and at that time it was like the non-aggression principle, like the initiation of force is wrong. What do you mean? We engage in moral judgment. Um, but now like sometime later, I've kind of realized I, I, I still have strong views, but I do think that things are a bit subjective. And also I, I don't think it's effective so effective to demonize people and try to say like what you're doing is wrong. Um, and no matter what, no matter what they're doing, they're, they're coming from a place of like their own personal history and, and something that's causing them to do that. And hmm. I think if you can engage with them on a human to human level and like connect with their feelings and needs, it, it might be better than, than condemnation. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. 
Well, with say with Stefan Molyneux, I followed his work for a few years and he would talk about this stuff like ostracism is the most powerful social tool that we have to change. And I don't think yes. that's, I think he was on the very wrong track. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like, I actually, I have some history with Stefan Molyneux. Um, when I was... You met him or you... Uh, well, I, I I did meet him, but I, I mean more so that I was really influenced by right. him, um, like mostly through Stephen, who I was with at the time. Um, Stefan Molyneux was, you know, he was a very influential guy and he he talked about ostracism a great deal, like even to the point of if you were a voluntarist and, you know, believed in the ethics of the non-aggression principle and didn't believe in initiating force and didn't believe in government and were an anarchist, then Stefan Molyneux would point out that like your friends and family members who are not voluntarists, maybe they don't admit it. Maybe they're extremely detached from it and they don't realize it themselves, but fundamentally on some level they're advocating that the government use guns against you for exp- for your beliefs like if you don't want to pay taxes and your friend is a statist and believes in taxes then on some level they're saying that they want you to be you know they they would advocate you being thrown in prison or he would say like yes. thrown in a cage at the point of a gun so it's a very so he would argue in many cases that people should have these really difficult conversations with friends and family members mm. and then disassociate from them or, or ostracize them mm. if they didn't come around. And uh, especially in the case of families too, like Steph has a very, he, he held and maybe still holds a view that the vast majority of families um, were abusive to their children yeah. in one way or another. Yeah. And, and really, um, he would say like, go to therapy and, you know, defooing is a last resort. Defooing was his like lingo word for de family of origin or, or leaving your family of origin. But on his call in shows, I mean, the reality of it was he would basically advocate that nearly anybody defoo for, mm-hmm. for almost any reason. Yeah. It's kind of like, well, he'd gone through so much therapy but he was still, his worldview was very colored by the experience of abuse that he had. And so, yes. yeah. We watched that video the other day where Jordan Peterson reads the introduction to Beyond Good and Evil, and it, Nietzsche is talking about how basically any philosopher is actually telling his life story when he presents a, when he or she presents a philosophy it's it's not yeah. just you can't really take the human being away from their viewpoints and i th- i think there's a lot of value to that yeah yeah i think that's true i mm. think that's true it was really interesting how nietzsche pointed that out um yeah i don't, I don't think that stefan molyneux was trying to be malicious like some people will say that, that, you know, there's some people that say he's a he's a cult leader and he's trying to separate people from their families so that he can get more donations or something. But I, yeah. I don't think that's 
I don't think that's the motivation. Um, I'm not a Steph fan now, but I, I don't think that was the motivation. But um, yeah, his his very firm ideology like resulted in a lot of isolation in my life, hmm. which was a big negative, I think. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, the thing about disassociating from people if if they you know, they really want you to pay taxes or whatever it is. They really want you to obey the speed limit, whatever. Right. <laughs> it's, it's this really people who follow Molyneux and, and Molyneux himself, I guess they, they wanted to pin down and just reduce it like, hey, well, in this situation, you would actually wish me ill. But it's not that yeah. simple. Like there's this whole gray areas and this – these moral sections of people's life that they never really thought about. And even when they do think about, they have these emotional reactions conflicting with another. So it's, it's not simple. Like just saying, Hey, you, you wish me ill in this very specific hypothetical situation. So I'm not going to talk to you. Yeah. Most of the time that person is probably really cool to you. So yeah. (laughs) what's the problem? (laughs) Yeah. Most of the time that person is probably really cool to you and maybe they've never even thought about that specific hypothetical situation. And also, like you said, it is, it's complicated. (laughs) It's complicated. Like political philosophy is, is complicated. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. Can't expect people to be experts. At that time, I was really, I was really convinced that I was a hundred percent an expert, mm. and like had found the capital T truth. That's not yeah. where I'm at anymore. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I lost some friendships by doing too, going too hard about that stuff too. Yeah. And it wasn't really cool. Oh, that is, it was a valuable lesson. Um, what's <laughs> what's really important <laughs> right <laughs> yes right and i mean what kind of uh like even if if you believe strongly in voluntarism or libertarianism or whatever ideology like what kind of a world are you really building if the people who don't agree with you you just cut them off and like say that they're evil because you did probably if you're in some kind of radical fringe philosophy like you probably didn't agree with yourself a couple of years ago <laughs> yes <laughs> and you know five ten years ago you wouldn't have been even open to hearing the ideas so yeah <laughs> not at all, not at all. <laughs> yeah yeah i was I was really not open when I first heard libertarian ideas. (laughs) I was really hostile. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Hmm. So what happened next? Like eventually you moved to Mexico. How how did that, what was the seed that was planted and how did that grow? Okay. Uh, So moving to Mexico, um, I think the first seed that was planted there was reading Tim Ferriss's four hour work week mm. uh, where he talks about lifestyle design and he talks about, you know, pe- he, he really tears apart a lot of assumptions about work and working the nine to five and, you know, getting a house, getting an apartment and having all these things. And it was in that book that I was first introduced to the idea of like digital nomads. When I was in a position, I had gotten an online job 
um, just doing transcriptions that was flexible and you know part time, and it wasn't enough to really support me in the states. Um, but I was kind of in a place in my life where I wanted to change. You know, I really wanted to be alone for a while. I wanted to figure myself out. I wanted to relax and not have to worry about like the the daily hustle so much. Hmm. Um, and that seed had been planted a while ago. And initially when that seed was planted, I had done a bunch of research on, on locations for like potential in the future. And I had settled on Puerto Vallarta because it was a, a really beautiful beach location in Mexico, very safe. There was still a lot of English speaking there because it was touristy. So I thought it would be like a good place to get my feet wet, you know? Mm. Um, and so once I had that online job and I didn't have anything tying me to Austin anymore, I decided to just go for it. And yeah, <laughs> that's what I did. That's what I did. <laughs> See you later. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean like, not, not really. I mean, it was like five months. I, I let people know I was moving a long time before I moved. I planned it for a while. And yeah. 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 Got but I noticed, an apartment down there. Yeah. Right. When I left my call center job, somebody was like, like did a double tank, like, hang on, you're actually doing it. Like you, I know you said <laughs> it a year ago, but now you've, you're really doing it. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, you know, I do things. <laughs> yeah. It was so scary and it was so surreal too. I don't know what it was like for you, but when I first landed in Mexico, like I was excited on the plane, but also on the plane, I was thinking, what am I doing? I'm like a single woman in my early twenties alone. I don't know the language. I have no idea like where I'm going. Like (laughs) I've never been here before. (laughs) I don't know anybody here. What am I doing? Well, no, for me, it was a lot easier, I think, because I'd, I'd eased into it, taking a, a trip to Colombia years before. I'd started studying Spanish, like, I guess, maybe six years before uh, I moved. I eventually moved to Mexico uh, and been to Mexico before and, and visited La Paz and Guadalajara, Mexico City. So I had an idea okay. about the culture or just two weeks of uh, <laughs> education about the culture. Uh, so actually for, for me, it was it felt pretty easy. So yeah, it was funny. For me, it was surreal. Mm. You know, I, I just, I did it and I knew I was doing it and I was happy about it. And I thought this is the choice that I'm making and I'm going for it and we're going to see what happens. Mm. But when I actually landed, I remember landing and looking around and, and seeing the mountains and I thought, huh, I didn't know there were mountains here. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, and then I took a taxi to my, my new apartment and met up with the, the realtor that I had worked with online and she gave me a kiss on the cheek and I thought, is she, is she flirting with me? <laughs> <laughs> Was she cute? <laughs> sure. Sure. <laughs> yeah, it was just, it was an adventure for sure. I'm yeah. very glad that, I'm very glad that I made that leap. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. 
And so I think it's a, a lot of people do have that fear, like, hang on, making money online? Like, you think I'm going to be a YouTube star or something? And uh -huh. that's the only thing that they're really familiar with. So that's the, the only thing that they can think of. They can't imagine all these other ways that you can make money online. So how did you, you found the transcription job to begin with? Yeah. Uh, well, so that job was actually, when I found that was nearly a year before I moved to Mexico. And the situation there is I actually was working in a call center as a salesperson and I was burning out, having a difficult time. I really loved it until I started realizing that the company actually wasn't a good company. All right. It was an outbound <laughs> call center? It was, uh, my calls were about 70% inbound oh, and 30% okay. outbound, but the outbound calls were only to people who had requested information. So it was not, okay. um, yeah, it wasn't cold calling. I was selling home security systems. The issue was that I, I realized over time that the, all the good reviews of the company that I had seen, like they were kind of paying these review sites and, hmm. uh, there were a lot of like little gotcha clauses in the contract and. Hmm. Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't told to lie, but definitely encouraged to word things in tricky ways to avoid lots of truths. Um, so I just felt increasingly uncomfortable and I left that and the idea was uh, for me to just, I was just going to take a break from working for a while because I knew I didn't want to be a salesperson. You know, I'd kind of I had this plan to get into international relations and then I was like, Oh my God, government is evil. What am I going to do? Uh, just do math. And, I, and then I, <laughs> but I wasn't, I was never passionate about math. I was like really quantitatively oriented, but that wasn't ever my dream. Um, mm. And then I dropped out and moved to Austin and was, you know, a waitress and a salesperson. I knew that's not what I wanted to do. It was just kind of, I was figuring it out. Mm. So I was taking some time off work and I was just looking for something part-time and flexible, like a gig. And uh, I found the transcription job on Craigslist, actually. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So I, I'd never thought to do transcription that. before. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah, actually, I started doing some transcription. Um, someone just, a woman I met in Spain messaged me and said, oh, yeah, we're looking for Aussies to do transcription. So I'll make a little money. Aussie specifically. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a, like cool. Aussie audio. So it's easier. Oh, okay. If I understand the accent. So, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a good job. I mean, there's, there's a lot of ways to work online. I mean, Upwork is a good resource. I know you did teaching English online. There's a million mm. different sites to teach English. There's, we work remotely is a good site where there's a lot of remote jobs. You can do customer service remotely. You can do sales remotely. You can obviously, if you're a programmer, like if you're in tech, you're set. Like there's plenty of remote jobs if you can code. Uh, but, you know, design, graphic design, that's more what I started getting into. It's like graphic design and web design with a couple of friends after I moved down here. Mm. Um, Did you take a course in graphic design? I was a hobbyist graphic designer from the time that I was a kid. So I took, mm. I took a lot of uh, Adobe courses online. Like I'm talking about even when I was 10, 11, 12, I took two 
semesters of graphic design courses while I was in high school. Um, but it wasn't not like a strong formal education, mm. but I've been, I've been doing like little logos and websites for high school and college clubs it's forever. Yeah. So there's a lot of opportunities for people. Yeah. So in terms of the political stuff or the apolitical stuff, I know, it, I guess it was about, it's a little more than two years ago. I remember we started having these discussions where you, you were talking like, hang on, I think maybe voluntarism isn't the one true way. Or something. <laughs> that was the kind of conversation we were having. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, this really, it, it kind of started while I was still in Austin, but then it really started hitting after I moved to Mexico because I was, I had been in a community where I was surrounded by voluntarists. So that, those were the only ideas that I was hearing. But then when I was just meeting other people and hearing other perspectives and introducing voluntarism to people who weren't kind of in that sphere already, hmm. they brought up some decent criticisms. <laughs> And and also I was I was always interested in um why is it that all the other anarchists hate the anarcho capitalists and don't consider ANCAPs to be anarchists and you know ANCAPs and voluntarists are pretty closely linked. Mm. So I was trying to figure that out because I thought, okay, there's like hundreds of years of anarchist history here, and you know, maybe they're all idiots, but probably not totally. Yeah, <laughs> they probably have something to their ideas. <laughs> so I started reading some of the leftist anarchists and um yeah, I I realized that, in my opinion, um, but I I think this is true. I I don't think that I, I I don't I don't think that property rights are are even consistent with voluntarism or properly morally justified in voluntarist philosophy. And hmm. um, so, what case about that? And uh, yeah. people will often use the Lockean argument to justify property rights. So we talk yeah. about mixing your labor with an object. So if there's a tree and you cut down the tree and you turn it into a house, well, that's that's kind of your house. But the land that it's on, you didn't make the land. And you didn't. Right. And, and you exactly, also didn't make yeah. the tree. That's true um, as well. Yeah. So but you mix, and you, at least bit, you mix your labor with the tree. You, so that, at least you mix your labor with the tree. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, there's a couple of things here. Like one, why do we assume that me mixing my labor with something makes it mine, and not that it means that I lose my labor? Hmm. I, that's not the, That's not what I agree with. But I mean, that's an assumption. It's not. It's not yeah. like inherently true that I mix my labor with something and now it's. And now it's just mine. That's right. I um, mean, the idea is you're you're the one that made it useful, and and therefore you have some ownership over what happened, and you own the object. I guess that's the, <laughs> the line of thinking. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I mean, and the line of thinking makes some sense. I'm not saying there's nothing to it, but hmm. this doesn't seem like an objective moral truth. No. Um, also. Uh, even if we're going to get beyond labor mixing, like uh, you, you mixing your labor with land, isn't the only thing that gives land value. And we know this and market anarchists and ANCAPs definitely know this, that value is subjective and people are definitely willing to pay for undeveloped land. 
Mm. Undeveloped land is valuable because it is scarce. Mm-hmm. We, we, we live in a, we live in a finite world. And the fact of the matter is that if, if you claim any piece of land as your property, what you're effectively saying is it is an aggressive act in a sense, because this land, okay, let's say we're starting from zero, which I know isn't where we're starting, but we're starting from zero. This mm. land is untouched. Anybody could potentially move freely on it, pick the apple off the tree, lounge in the grass or whatever, which does have value in and of itself. Like just the space itself and the nature itself does have value. Yes. If you say, this is mine, what you're saying is, I declare that I have the moral right to violently prevent you from crossing this line. It's a, it's a threat. And I'm not saying that's not justified. Like, I think that we do... <laughs> I think we do need property and like I'm, I generally still believe in private property and markets, but cause I think they, they work well. And I, I tried a long time to try to come with, up with some kind of a philosophy that like didn't require force to enforce property, but it just started mm. getting ridiculous. And, and then <laughs> I don't know, like then for me, it, it kind of made the non-aggression principle fall apart. Yeah. Well, it's it's a funny thing, like, say, if you're sleeping in your home, even even if we kind of assume maybe it's not exactly your home, maybe you don't own it exactly, and someone sneaks in at night, it's it starts to be a reasonable assumption that they're wishing you ill, that they want to take yeah. some of your personal property or maybe injure you or something like that. And so yeah. you have to get really suspicious and maybe you start to threaten them because of that. So yeah. that's there's some there's some logic there. Totally. It's not illogical. And I don't I also don't think it's illogical to want to be able to own your house and mm. prevent people from walking into that house, nor do I think it's illogical to think that I, I mean I think that labor mixing is a pretty good justification for property. Mm. Um I just don't think that it's a morally true <laughs> justification mm. for property. Um, mm. Yeah. Well, one thing it makes me think about as well, I think this, this is more or less accurate. So Europeans came to North America and they said, wow, land of milk and honey, like everything is so lush and beautiful and uh, the whole, the land just grows whatever you want. It's, everything is fertile what they didn't realize, there's this unseen factor. The Native Americans have been cultivating this land on their mm. own. Like they've been making the the right conditions for plants to grow for probably generations, maybe tens or scores of generations. Yeah. And then, you know, you come along and see it and you're like, oh, wow, it just grows like that. It's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> and the Native Americans, of course, had a quite a different idea of property. They did have some, yeah. not necessarily private property. They had ideas about tribal property. Yeah, and most yeah. most property systems. I mean, natives. I, I mean, I'm sure different Native American tribes had different forms of property, but I think it was somewhat tribal or communal and like migratory. Hmm. But I mean, even communists have some idea of property capitalists have a different idea of property but then like even if you're okay even if you're just speaking among ancaps or voluntarists who 
completely agree with the Lockean justifications for private property rights. There's still questions like, okay, if I build my house and mix my labor with this house and create the house, like how much, how much of a yard am I allowed to claim? And if I stop Mm -hmm. mowing my lawn or if I never wanted to mow my lawn because I want to have a prairie, then can I not section that off? And like, how much labor mixing do I need to do? Do I just need to put up a fence or do I need to like till it a little bit or just mow the lawn? Like what, what is the standard? And also things like pollution and things like noise where you have effects that affect other people's property, but it's kind of diffuse and it's hard to pin down and like everybody's kind of contributing to the destruction or like river River rights, can I just dam a river? And, you know, people will say no, like, because the people down the river had homesteaded the rights to the river, and they'll have these debates about it. But, like, ultimately, people say that there's going to be some kind of a decentralized court system that's going to adjudicate this, Mm. I guess. But that's still giving, that's giving a lot of authority to this court system to decide to use violence in not... I don't know, not necessarily defensive ways or to decide who's the aggressor or who's the defender when it's not clear. Yes. Part of the idea is that these the court systems don't necessarily have legal authority. So it's like, I imagine, say, if you're in a situation where you're working for some decentralized law enforcement organization and say you you think you have all these great reasons, all this evidence why you think there's stolen property in somebody's house. Now, you could just go walk in there and take it, but mm-hmm. maybe that uh, maybe if your if your reasons turn out to be false, maybe maybe you have a problem with liability or other things. And so maybe you go to this this court and you you ask them for a warrant and that way your liability is shared they give you they give you a warrant liability from who like who's enforcing your liability <laughs> like other decentralized it just kind of sounds like a mess i, I don't know <laughs> yeah it does know. sound like a mess but markets are I, I, markets are very, this complex labyrinthine thing yeah yeah but, but should we have a complex labyrinth like messy market for violent enforcement I don't know. I, I, no, I, 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 don't, I don't know. Like, I, I don't have like an alternative that I'm proposing, hmm. but it just kind of, once I realized that voluntarism wasn't really voluntarist in the way that I thought, then I was kind of like, huh, do these decentralized court systems actually sound like a good idea? And when I kind of think about it, maybe they are, maybe I'm just not hearing it right. But when I think about it, I'm like, you know what? No, this sounds like a, this sounds like a mess. <laughs> this sounds like a <laughs> I don't know. I think it, I think generally it would work pretty well. Occasionally you get messy situations. I think you get less messy situations than you get with government systems where they're like, well, this is my jurisdiction and that's all that they need to justify a thing. Whereas in, the, in, yeah. in this system, everybody is literally equal before the eyes of the law. And if you do something like reclaim stolen property, you better be able to defend it, regardless of whether you're a police officer or whoever you are. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would <laughs> like for that to, I would like for that to be the case, but I don't, I don't know if practically everyone actually would be equal or it would just be, hmm. I mean, in the, in the system that we have now, people with more money and more power have more influence and can get away with more stuff. I'm yeah. not sure if that system would exacerbate that or alleviate. I think it kind of the conclusion or not really conclusion, but the ideas that I'm working with now. Yeah. Is, I think that systems are important, but I think that people are more important than systems. Like there's some monarchies mm. and dictatorships that are really libertarian and work really well, even though somebody has ultimate authority, kind of. Um, and then there's some democracies. What is it, Mark, that are, Luxembourg or? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like Luxembourg. Municipality. Luxembourg. Yeah, Luxembourg is doing really great. It's a municipality or um I don't know. Municipality, right? It's a run by a prince. Yes. It's yeah. run by a prince. And the prince actually it was very ideologically libertarian and hmm. like wrote um the the different regions within Luxembourg are allowed to secede if they want to. Wow, um, that's cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it's quite liberative. But but someone with kind of absolute power decided to do that. Um, mm. And then you have other situations where maybe it's like a constitutional democracy with a lot of freedoms hypothetically guaranteed. But mm. if you get a bunch of corrupt people in office and you end up going down this like horrible spiral of corruption and violence like within the country and the people and the government itself then it doesn't matter what's written on the paper mm. so much you know I, I i think systems matter and systems tend to correlate with with the people in them to an extent but i think that you know, if if you have a society of like highly evolved ethical people who respect each other and generally know how to work out co conflicts pe peacefully amongst each other, then a dictatorship isn't really going to hold. Mm. Um, and if you did have a dictator, it would have to be a pretty chill, benevolent one, probably. I don't know. Yeah. Well, that's it. I would just. I, I would rather it. live yeah. in. A, I would. I, I think culture culture is more more important than government governmental yes. structure in terms of how yes. living in a place actually is. Yeah. Generally, I, I think that's the case because you, governments think they can, sometimes they think they can overrule culture, but they really can't. Culture, culture is such an overwhelming force. Yeah. Hard to Go, pin down, governments, it's there. Yeah. Yeah. And governments can kind of manipulate culture if the culture buys into the government. Mm. But, but if the government tries to go too far outside of what the culture would allow, then you get big tensions. Hmm. Well, I really think that the idea of compassionate anarchy or relational anarchy is really important. So it's like we can set a standard for a better world in the way that we treat other people by, by being cool, by being uh, trying to be less argumentative and <laughs> embracing people's yeah. different views and uh, not blaming them, you know, the nonviolent communication as well. I, I think yeah. in our everyday actions we can make a better world. I think so too. I think if we can shift a culture towards more 
empathy and compassion and reasonableness or reason and um hmm. Yeah, I, I think I think that's what we need. Um, so maybe my philosophy has gotten. I've become so vague and wishy washy over the years. Like me, the the way that I'm speaking now would bother me so much four <laughs> years ago. <laughs> it would bother me so much. <laughs> that's a it's not wishy washiness. It's nuance. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Right. It's the knowledge that you don't know everything. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Humility. Yeah. It's sure. been a fun thing to to learn. Yes. I, I've been I've been knocked down like thirty notches at least. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, cool. Well, we can wrap it up there. So, of course, we can. People who want to hear us talk more can tune into the multiversity. What's what's the uh, the website? Yeah, absolutely. So we're Kurt and I are on a podcast together. We're on a philosophy podcast called the Multiversity, and it is at multiversitypodcasts.com. Yep, and we're yep. on Instagram and YouTube and Facebook, Facebook and Twitter. Cool. We're yeah, we're all over. <laughs> cool. cool. Yeah, so thank you for everybody this. Tunes in. Yeah, well, thanks for having this conversation with me. <laughs> yeah, it was it was fun. <laughs> thanks for tuning in to the Paradise Paradox. Remember, I've got another interview coming up with our other co-host Arielle Friedman, and we'll talk about her philosophical development, how she got interested in classical philosophy, reading Aristotle and Socrates, the Greek greats, as well as Hegel and other philosophical personages from history. So we'll get into that in the next couple of weeks. Remember, you can check out the podcast. It's called The Multiversity Project. Check it out at multiversitypodcast.com. Check it out, multiversitypodcast.com. You can check it out on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Steemit, Hyperspace, and some other interesting platforms as well. So I hope you <laughs> I hope you have a great day. I hope everything is wonderful for you in the world. And whenever you take a step, amazing starbursts come out of the pavement and come up and hit you in the face. Thank you so much. Have a great day. <laughs> <laughs>